0: Father, we come this evening to stand in that power, the power of Christ, and Father, to come even this moment into your presence believing in that sufficient sacrifice. Father, we come believing that as a people, as we gather here in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, with the express purpose of meeting together around your word, that you, by your Spirit, will meet with us. And if you meet with us, then we will not meet in vain. And I pray that you will speak and minister to your people, even through the still, small voice. That we will leave here experiencing the grace that comes through the ministry of the Word. The ministry of the Word in song the ministry of fellowship. We would leave here being renewed and revived in our souls to live in this world. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to welcome you all here this evening. I feel a bit off balance. And so, I probably messed up the camera, didn't it, there, Jeremy, but... Okay. There we go. Well, it's good to be with you tonight. I appreciate Dave filling in for me uh, last Wednesday and then um, Dennis this uh, Sunday. And uh, it's good to be here and even to be here at Jim's official last Sunday in in worship and the blessing that was and to have Andrew with us and uh, they continue to work together. A couple of announcements I was just going to remind us of that a couple of things coming up there is the garage sale that's coming up in June and that is for uh, primarily for raising funds to help send Jim and Nikki and the Heisers off the expenses that are going to be involved in that we've already started a little collection at home things that we're going to put there so you bring that to church there's some instructions bring it to church on a Wednesday night and Jimmy and Whitney and company are going to sort through it and have a community-wide garage sale here at the church so hope you'll participate in that and then the other thing going on is to support our troops um david waymeyer his son is uh in an undisclosed area with a small group of soldiers and they have some needs and you know as time goes on we tend to kind of lose sight of those guys out there but um Eric is a strong believer and I believe more than ever needs our support and our prayers. And so there's some items there that you can give. And I'd like you to really consider doing that. We're going to collect that and send off uh, them expressing our support for what they're doing and pray for them. So, Well, we've been doing a series on assurance on Wednesday nights, and we're going to continue to do that, continue to study this topic of assurance. I think assurance is a subject that... Every believer is truly going to be interested in, because I think in one way or another, every believer struggles at times over the issue of assurance. We have looked thus far that God intends for believers to have assurance. That is his design. We have noted that many people have a false sense of assurance, which creates a problem. We are commanded as believers to seek after assurance. Um, we have noted that. How doubt can be a very valuable role that God uses in shaking false assurances that not all doubt is bad. We looked at what we call the currency of assurance, the front and the back. We examine ourselves, but behind it all stands the finished work of Jesus Christ. All the things that we just sung about just a moment ago in Christ alone. This evening, I want to deal with the subject of doubt, but I want to deal with the subject of doubt from the perspective of doubt in a true believer. True believers struggling with doubt. False believers, we hope, will struggle with doubt and have doubts. But what happens when a genuine child of God struggles with doubt? I'll begin um, by making this kind of, I would just call it a personal assessment as I consider so many of the biographies of Christian men and women that I've read, as I consider the ministry for a number of years now and look at my own personal experience, my personal assessment is that every believer, every true Christian will struggle with doubt at some time in their life to one degree or another. I just I find that almost to be a universal principle. As a matter of fact, it's almost ironic that Unbelievers will probably not struggle with doubts. False professions won't have doubts. True professions will often have many doubts. It's, just, it's almost paradoxical or oxymoron. All believers will struggle to one degree or another with doubt. And if you're a Christian long enough, you will struggle with this. You'll struggle with this issue of assurance at some point in your life. I'm going to begin tonight by reading a letter that John MacArthur actually read to his congregation some time ago but it was a letter that he himself received and I think it kind of highlights the issues that I want to speak about tonight Dear John I've been attending Grace Church for several years as a result of growing conviction in my heart your preaching and my seeming powerlessness against the temptations which arise in my heart and which I constantly succumb to My growing doubts have led me to believe that I'm not saved. How sad it is, John, for me not to be able to enter in because of the sin which clings to me and from which I long to be free. How bizarre for one who has had advanced biblical training and who teaches Sunday school with heartfelt conviction. So many times I have determined in my heart to repent to shake loose my desire to sin. To forsake all for Jesus only. To only to find myself doing the sin I don't want to do. And not doing the good I want to do. After my fiancé and I broke up, I memorized Ephesians as a part of an all-out effort against sin. Only to find myself weaker and more powerfully aware of my sinfulness. More prone to sin than ever before. And grabbing cheap thrills to push back the pain of lost love. This occurs mostly in the heart, John, but that's where it counts and that's where we live. I sin because I'm a sinner. I'm like a soldier without armor, running across the battlefield, getting shot up by the fiery darts from the enemy. I couldn't leave the church if I wanted to. I love the people. I'm enthralled by the gospel of the beautiful Messiah but I am a pile of manure on the white marble floor of Christ, a mongrel dog that has snuck in the back door of a king's banquet just to lick the crumbs off the floor. I ask you to pray for me as you think best. It's a point letter. And I believe at one time or another, it could probably be signed by any one of us in this room. We may not be able to articulate it quite the way he did, or maybe not even use the language quite as crass as he did. A pile of manure on the white marble of Christ. And yet many times that's exactly how we feel. I don't usually give and don't give assurance to people. Oh, no, you are a Christian. But as I read this letter... That didn't sound to me like a person dead in their trespasses and sins. That didn't sound to me like a false profession of faith. As a matter of fact, as I read through it again, I started underlining things. I went back to our sermon on signs of life. And I saw so many parallels. Conviction of sin. Hatred of sin. Hatred of sin, even though you would commit the sin. Love for the church. Desire for holiness. All those things are there. it doesn't sound to me like a testimony of someone who's made a false profession of faith. In all honesty, it sounds to me like one struggling in the Christian life. It is what the Christian life so often looks like. Such a struggle where we wonder, is there any possible that I'm a Christian? Well, this evening I want to look and I've entitled the message, Things That Will Erode the Assurance of the Believer. Things that will erode the assurance of the believer. Thomas Watson, um, famous Puritan, said, if you have assurance, be careful that you do not lose it. We need to be careful. Assurance can very easily turn into just a calloused presumption. And if you think, oh, no, I, I know I'm a Christian today. Be careful. What about tomorrow? What about a week from now? As I was coming to church this afternoon, I was driving there on the Road, and have to think of my boys. They go back and forth to school every week, and I always tell them every time, you know, Seth, don't speed. Guys, wear your seatbelts. And I, it just, my heart, you know, I had that feeling. What if something happened to them? What if they were in a wreck? What if one of them were on life support? Where would I be at? How would I handle that spiritual? I don't know. If you have assurance, Watson says, be careful that you don't lose it. True believers will struggle with doubt, and there are things that I believe erode our assurance. So I've got four or five things I'm going to move through here. Things that will erode assurance. I'm talking about true believers. I'm talking about people genuinely born again. There are things that will erode their assurance. I'll begin with what I think is the foremost one. The most deadly. And that's sin. Sin will erode our assurance. Clearly, if you read that letter, that man is struggling with sin. He's struggling with the reality of sin in his life. Sin erodes our assurance, and it should, right? I mean, you can't live in sin and be a Christian. One of the most terrible aspects of modern notions of eternal security, we call it once saved, always saved. One of the worst byproducts of that once saved, always saved. One of the worst byproducts is a minimization of the seriousness of sin in the life of a believer. If you believe, and once saved, always saved, that, that settles it. It minimizes how destructive sin is in the life of a believer. If you don't qualify it, if you just, yeah, Hey, I said the prayer and I believe it. I want save you're always saved and you just live with that reality and life really doesn't matter what you do it minimizes the seriousness of sin. 1 John, let's this we're going to look at a few passages. 1 John chapter 3 verse 8. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. Verse 9. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. You cannot live in unrepentant, habitual sin. But Peter... Goes even farther. Go back just a few pages. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul that shallow notions of eternal security minimize the seriousness of what Peter is talking about here abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul the word wage war Stratuomai in Greek. Some of you guys probably, maybe girls played Stratego. It's a Greek word. Stratiomi. It means to strategize, to wage a military campaign. Fleshly lust wage a military campaign against the soul. Who is this addressed to? You go back to verses 9 and 10. It's addressed to the people of God, to the chosen race, to the royal priesthood, to a people for God's own possession. And he says to these people, I urge you, listen to me, stay away from fleshly lust because they wage war against the soul. They kill the soul, they kill the life of God. They, they go to war against the soul. Matthew, Henry. To said the grand mischief that sin does to man is this. It wars against the soul. It destroys the moral liberty of the soul. It weakens and debilitates the soul by impairing its faculties. It robs the soul of its comfort and peace. It debases and destroys the dignity of the soul. It plunges it into everlasting misery. commit sexual immorality you commit adultery you are waging war against your soul drunkenness you you commit sin you are waging war against your soul Paul says in first Timothy those who desire to be rich plunge people into ruin and destruction when I was trying to just picture in my mind you know how how serious this is you stay away from fleshly lust which wage war against your soul i said what how can you how can you illustrate that and i thought well what if i had a vial a syringe of this uh, flu virus the swine flu virus and it's and it's sitting there i mean that would wage war against my body if i took that and injected it i mean i'm going to get sick it weakens me i, I feel Terrible about it, and that's exactly what he says. You 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 play with sin. You are injecting your soul with poison, with sickness. It's going to be weak. It, it's robbing it of its life, of its power. It's like it's eating out your guts. You struggle with sin, and this man here, there's no doubt he is struggling with sin. Maybe he has a besetting sin. This man in this letter. You go. You confess it. sorry. Lord, I shouldn't have done that. And then you do it again. And this time you wait a little bit long to confess it. Oh, Lord, I'm sorry. And then you do it again. And then you confess it. And then you do it again. And after a while it's taking longer and longer to deal with it because you're getting so discouraged. You don't even want to deal with it anymore. You are on the verge of destroying your soul. That sin is literally waging war against the soul. And there is only one way to combat sin, and that's taking it straight back to the cross of Jesus Christ right away. Dealing with it, repenting of it, and coming in. I'm telling you, when you... Struggle with sin. The temptation will be just to finally quit dealing with it. You know, Christ can't stand. How could He even look at me? I can't come back and ask for forgiveness again and again and again and again, can I? Absolutely, you must. You absolutely must do that. You must fight sin with the gospel. We must practice 1 John 1, 9 daily, if not hourly. If there is a person in this room that is not regularly, consistently practicing 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, I'm telling you, you're in a dangerous place. Because you've either given up fighting Or you don't have any life in you whatsoever. But we have to deal with our sin by the cross of Jesus Christ. I love Psalm 23. When you realize the war that sin wages against our soul, Psalm 23 has become so precious to me, He restores my soul. He restores it. He renews it. He revives it. Sin destroys it. Sin takes its life. Sin weakens my soul. Jesus Christ and His grace and His mercy renews my soul, restores my soul. So sin, sin will erode assurance, and it should, but we must deal with it, deal with it at the cross of Jesus Christ. The other, another area, thing that erodes our assurance is satanic attacks. Satanic attacks. We are in a spiritual war. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12. I wonder what it would be like if we could see right now who was under spiritual attack. I wonder if we could see families and find out which ones spiritual forces of darkness were at work trying to destroy souls. I wonder what we would do wonder what we would feel wonder how much more serious we would be wonder if we could see marriages young men young women to see satanic attack to see spiritual forces of darkness waging war against them what would it be like yet we don't live by sight we live by faith we believe in what god says is true and ephesians 6:12 says our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers against the powers against the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness wickedness in the heavenly places we are under spiritual attack our our, our enemies not liberals It's not the president. There are spiritual forces at work in our lives to undermine and destroy the work that God has done. I mean, that's a fact. That's a spiritual war that is going on. Satan's assault against the believer is directed against our faith. And right now, there are spiritual forces at work, blinding eyes, dulling ears, discouraging, depressing, trying to undermine faith. Don Whitney, in his book on, on how can I be sure I'm a Christian? He has this remarkable line. He says the devil's diabolical strategy in general is to convince lost people they are saved and saved people That they are lost. I think that's pretty accurate. His plan is to convince lost people they're saved. You're okay. And saved people, you're lost. There are doubts. There are struggles that are the result of spiritual forces at work in our lives. Revelation 12.10, Satan is called the accuser of our brethren. We see the book of Job. Spiritual forces are at work. I don't think we should ever underestimate the devastating power of this diabolical duo of Satan, spiritual forces, and our own sin. You think of that arrayed against a soul? My sin, my own struggle with me, and then spiritual forces at work. That's overwhelming at times. It's no wonder believers at times struggle with assurance. You sin, you worry again, you grow anxious, you lust. Where you fall into sin again, and where does the what's the thought? Who do you think you are? Christian doesn't do that. Christian doesn't act like that. Christian would never do anything like that. Who do you think you are? If you think about it, that's not a strategy. I think Whitney is so correct. That's not a strategy that Satan would use to somebody that is falsely assured of their salvation. And he's going to use that attack on believers. How do you you combat that? How do you combat spiritual forces at work in our life, undermining our faith, eroding our assurance, Well, this is what Paul writes about, I think, in Ephesians chapter 6. He says in verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And then he tells us to put on our armor. Put on the armor. This is how you're going to fight this satanic oppression. You're going to put on the belt of truth. Stand firm, verse 14, having girded your loins with truth. I mean, everything hangs on the belt. The belt holds everything together. It all hangs on truth. You put on the breastplate of righteousness. I was talking to someone just a minute ago. What is this breastplate of righteousness? Well, when you're struggling with sin, it's certainly not your own righteousness. It has to be the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I am not saved on the basis of my righteousness. I am saved because of Christ's righteousness for me. shod shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel, taking up the shield of faith, take the helmet of salvation, your mind girded in this salvation by faith, by grace through faith alone, and then taking up the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. When Satan attacks us in this way, and our assurance... We begin to struggle with assurance and things begin to erode our assurance and confidence. What do we do? Well we put on this armor. And I mean it can be real symbolic, metaphorical, belt of truth, but let me just what do you do when you're under this kind of well you you must preach to yourself. You must preach truth to yourself. I'll tell you why you have to preach to yourself because satanic forces will preach to you. They're gonna to speak to you. I've heard someone say, quit listening to yourself and start preaching to yourself. You will speak to yourself. How can I be a Christian? You have got to speak to yourself the truth of God's word, the promises of God's word. I don't know, in all honesty, how anyone survives as a Christian that does not preach to themselves regularly and consistently. I have to do that. I have to preach to myself the truth of God's word. I have to tell myself again, this is true. The belt of truth. How did Jesus respond to satanic attack? Temptation. It is written. It is written. We've got to do that. When we are struggling with assurance, we are struggling with sin. It is written. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. It is written that a man is not saved by works, but by faith alone in Christ. It is written, you will never leave me. You will never forsake me. Preach these things to yourself. Preach First John. Another area that erodes, I believe, are assurance. Sin. Satanic attack. I think thirdly, an undisciplined life will eventually erode our assurance. An undisciplined life. The neglect of the spiritual disciplines. The Bible says in Christ we are given eternal life. What is eternal life? It is life. And life has to be sustained. It's not a magic wand. And there are means to sustain that life within us that God has given us. It's the disciplines of grace. And you become undisciplined in your life. You will eventually erode your assurance. Your assurance will be eroded. There have been times in my journal, in those low points of my life, and I begin to recollect all my failures and recollect all my you know weaknesses and Failures as a husband, failures as a father, failures here, failures there. And there have been times on a number of occasions I have summed it all up. Undisciplined, 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 undisciplined. I am undisciplined. Undisciplined in the things of God. When we become lazy spiritually, we begin to neglect Bible reading, we begin to neglect prayer, we begin to neglect fellowship. And before long, you're going down a path that will lead to a life that will erode your assurance. You're no longer, several times in this study on assurance, give due diligence to this, due diligence to this. You're no longer giving due diligence. You're slacking off. Turn with me just a few pages to the right to Second Peter chapter. One Second Peter chapter one. Verse five. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence and in your moral excellence, knowledge, in your knowledge, self-control, your self-control, perseverance, your perseverance, godliness, in your godliness, brotherly kindness, your brotherly <coughs> kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You'll notice that list of virtues and it says in verse five, applying all Diligence supply these things to your faith. I mean, there is an intentionality here. There is a I'm going to I'm going to strive after this. And if you do this thing, you'll not be useless or unfruitful. And when you're unfruitful and not useless, then you, your assurance will there will be signs for assurance. And it's interesting because then Peter says in verse 10, he links this. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing You, for as long as you practice these things, you'll never stumble. One of the first steps of getting off the path of drifting is you're no longer intaking the Bible. You're not meditating on it. You're not reading. You're not praying. And oftentimes then you're not fellowshipping. You start missing the assembly. You're not around believers. And before long, you're just off the path so an undisciplined life can lead to eroding our assurance number four i won't spend a great deal of time on this one but it's one that people don't often think of rattling a person's assurance even for a believer but it's the word of god the word is where we turn to to find our assurance to claim our promises and at the same time the word of god is a is a very dangerous weapon. Peter calls it a sword. Hebrews 4. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but you, you've hopefully if you're with us in Hebrews, Hebrews 4, 11 through 12, the Word of God is living and powerful, is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing, dividing asunder, laying people open. You get into the word you sit under the ministry of the word and i think your assurance at time is at times is going to be rattled and it should he said man I, don't, I i i i'm so far from that ideal that, that's not me what, what what do you do in those times well the author of hebrews says You need to strive to enter into rest, into gospel rest, because the word of God is living and active and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. What do you do when that happens? What do you do when you're exposed before God by the word of God? Well, you run to Jesus Christ. That's what you do. You run to Christ. I said in that sermon in Hebrews, the word of God prepares us for the presence of God. I hope that settles with you and you think about that for a while. The Word of God prepares us for the presence of God. To be in the Word it's going to bring conviction. It's going to show you your failings, your shortcomings, husbands, wives, men, women. It's going to show you. What are you going to do with that? Run to Christ. Strive to enter gospel rest. Lord, I see your holy standard and I do not measure up, but I come in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ who has qualified me. He's, he's paid for this. If you don't make it a habit now to run to Christ, I don't see how in the world you're going to be able to stand before God's presence and claim Christ. I don't think it'll come automatic then. So run to Christ. I'll close with the last one. It's a very common one. It's a big one. Trials. Trials. Trials can often erode our assurance. Because trials so many times undermine one of the most common notions that we have in our relationship with God. When when things are going well, when I'm, you know, basically doing okay, God is pleased with me, but. If I do bad or when bad things happen, you begin to think, God, what is God against me? What, why is this happening to me? What, what's going on? And trials become a, a, a way of eroding our assurance. That's really the premise of the book of Job. How many people in the midst of trials feel a sense of abandonment by God? Where are you, God? Where are you? I'm convinced that believers will often go through spiritual wildernesses, spiritual times where God seems so far removed. There's times, you know, I pray and I honestly don't feel as if my prayers are going past the ceiling. It's just, God, where are you? And it's exactly in times like that where you think, you know, life, I don't have any life in me. I'm I'm struggling. I've been praying about things. God's not answering prayer. What's going on? I don't even know if I'm a Christian. We begin to to doubt. And then you get into real deep trials. Trials like Job, difficulties. And you begin to sense, what? Not the love of God. You must be under the wrath of God. You're not a child of God. God would never treat His children like that. believe Romans 8 addresses that you know we want to walk by our feelings we want to walk by our experiences that is that is truly in my opinion one of the biggest struggles in the Christian life is we don't walk by our feelings we don't walk by our experiences or our circumstances we walk by faith we walk not by how we feel we walk by what is true in God's word And that's a huge difference because so many times our sense of assurance is based on feeling. Most of the time, isn't it? Well, yeah, I, I feel like a Christian. I don't feel like a Christian. And I believe God takes us through these dry times spiritually where he is if he removes his presence from us. So that like a tree that's in a drought, the roots go deeper and we don't live by experience. We don't live by feelings. We live by faith. And we learn to know God by faith. We learn to be nourished by faith in what God has said. Romans 8, 31. I could read the whole chapter, but the whole section here, verse 31 to 39. But Paul's not oblivious to the fact that when you struggle, when you go through trials, when you go through difficulties, you begin to think God is against me. God is not for me. God must be punishing me. God is dealing with me. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Shall distress? Persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword? I mean, we, we just blow through those words. Famine, nakedness, peril. We don't even come close to experiencing those things in our life. Famine. There's no food in the grocery stores. There's no food at home. There's no food anywhere. God, what have you done? Nakedness. I don't even have clothes for my kids. We experience far less and wonder. God must be against me. That's not for me. I'm under the wrath of God. What do we do? When we go back to verse 32. Our assurance isn't based on experiences, but on the historical reality of what God has done for us in Christ. That's what our assurance is based on. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Nothing shall separate us from the love of God. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing verse thirty nine, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Again, we go back to the gospel. We go back to what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Constant theme in the subject of assurance. Well, I'm going to go back to the letter in closing. There's a man that is deeply struggling with his sin. I believe it's an experience that all believers face many times in their lives. Often, perhaps. It's an expression common to many. I don't think it's a sentiment of one who has a smug, false profession. I think it's a sentiment of one who's been battered by sin and self and spiritual forces of darkness. And he's virtually convinced himself, there's no way. I could be a child of God. When I think of the gospel and I think of the promises that are made in the gospel, I find this very, very encouraging reality that the gospel is not for self sufficient, proud, self righteous people. The gospel is for the poor, for the struggling, for the weak for the inadequate, for the sinner. That's what the Gospel's for. In the Gospel of Matthew, as Matthew observed the Lord's ministry, as he saw him working the crowds, healing, it brings to mind to him a prophecy in Isaiah. And he quotes from Isaiah, and he describes Jesus as he's dealing with the people. And he says in Matthew twelve twenty, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not put out. He's speaking about the way Jesus Christ tenderly deals with his people. A bruised reed, somebody battered and torn by sin, He's not going to break. A smoldering wick who's about to die just wants to give up. He's not going to quench. Matthew Henry in his commentaries spoke of those few phrases. Speaking of believers, he said, "Some, Some believers, little life they have, but it is like that of a bruised reed. Some, little heat. But it's like that of a smoking flax. Christ's disciples were as yet but weak. And many are so that have a place in his family today. The grace and goodness in them are as a bruised reed. The corruption and badness in them are as smoking flax. What is the compassion of our Lord Jesus toward them? He will not discourage them, much less reject them or cast them off. The Lord Jesus deals tenderly with those who are his own. Every aspect of the notion of assurance always brings us back to Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners. Brings us back to the gospel, the justification by faith alone. That's why Paul says we stand in the gospel. We never quit preaching Christ crucified. So remember these assaults. Sin. Sin assaults the soul. Satan assaults the soul. An undisciplined life will erode your assurance. At times, the Word of God will. The Word of God will. And the last one, Word of God, what is the last one? Trials. There we go. We'll do that. Well, let's close this in prayer. Father, I pray that this would be, at least to some who may be under a particular salt of another, a trial, sin, some who maybe souls are literally so shriveled from sin that there's hardly any life with them at all. May they hear the words of a Savior who says, he, who is described as one who will not quench smoking flax may their heart be softened to come to Christ again in repentance and faith in the blood that cleanses the conscience. For those that are under trial and are wondering or are in a spiritual wilderness and just feel so alienated from You, may they dig deeper into Your Word. May they cry out with the depth of their being. May You make Yourself known to Father, you desire that we have assurance that we know we are your children. At times it looks difficult, and at times it will go through difficult paths. But you will not let any of your children go. You will keep them. So I pray that this will be a means of keeping your people to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.